Would you open God's precious holy word to Deuteronomy 6? Just before I came in here, I, like the old boy said one day after church, he said, I was sitting on a thought and a pee ran through my mind. So I was sitting on a thought and a pee ran through my mind. And I wrote it down, I, I jotted it down so that I, I haven't had time to reflect on it to make it an official part of the sermon, but this is just my reflection on some things because it leads into what we're going to study uh, tonight. Philosophical ages, oh, dating back to Renaissance and the end of the Dark Ages. Coming out of that was the scientific revolution. John Locke, Sir Francis Bacon, um, Sir Isaac Newton, uh, men of science and mathematics and a lot of what we study in science and math today came out of those great thinkers in the uh, scientific revolution. So it was presented in Western Europe thought, Western European thought, that science and the pursuit of scientific knowledge is a good thing and it would be good for society. And so there were, there were great minds that were raised up during that time. And when, you know, when education was sort of released from its bondage after the Dark Ages, uh, men could think for themselves without fear of retribution for the ch- from the church even so-called church, um, and there, there was great progress, obviously, in the time of the scientific revolution. So the world became optimistic through, through scientific knowledge, and I suppose in some ways, uh, in many ways, life was improved. Now, after the, scientific, not the, the age of scientific knowledge was the age of enlightenment. We're looking here, I guess, at the 16th and 17th centuries. It was also called the age of reason. Um, It was a time of intellectual and philosophical advancement. So these thinking scholarly type people began to posit a lot of other things. And uh, the printing press and so forth added thought to thought so that someone could take my thoughts and even my personal research and in reading what I had written could add to that their thoughts and their personal research. So it was an age of enlightenment and uh, the ideas that came out of that age were the idea, for, of example, of constitutional government and uh, the idea of separation of church and state, which was a big deal because for so long the church had controlled the state. Now, moving into the late 1800s, forging its way through the Industrial Revolution, the Age of Enlightenment gave way to uh, modernism. Modernism uh, had, had a slogan that was something like this, progress is a good thing. Now, who defines progress, you know? 
It was the age of urbanization. They were moving more and more off of the farms and, and out of rural areas and into cities. And their work turned from agricultural work to industrial work. And it was an age of progress. So obviously taking the inventions of the thinkers moving forward and now they mechanize uh, the world in the sense that uh, you know there would be product lines where, where uh, goods and services be produced for the world and it was defined as progress. And that was the age of modernism. But uh, there were two, and it was the era of urbanization in the world, especially in the Western European and then of course in the North American world. There were two major disruptive thinkers during that age of modernism. One was in biology, the other was in uh, political science. Uh, the one in biology, of course, Charles Darwin. And his, his work uh, was disruptive and it, it created waves even into the church such that in Germany, during that time, there arose a theologian named uh, Valhausen. And he, in order that he could make the scriptures compatible with Darwinism, he came up with what was called higher criticism, uh, Valhausen higher, higher criticism, in which he took great liberties with uh, scripture and uh, thus discounted uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis and said that uh, also arose, that there arose from that the thought within, within uh, liberal theology that the Bible is not to be trusted in matters of history uh, or in matters of science, uh, only in matters of faith. Of, now that, that's, a, uh, that's an ideology that is still very strong uh, and it has birthed liberal Christianity which really is not Christianity at all. Now coming out of modernism, the era in which we find ourselves today is post-modernism, post-modernism, post-modernism. And I, I've tried to write down the characteristics here. Post-modernists are skeptical toward all of the previous ages. As a matter of fact, skepticism is probably the root principle of postmodernism. Thinkers and leaders who, who influence world leaders question the grand narratives of modernism, even. And so, um, what happens is in postmodernism, thinkers reject what is called objective truth. And replace it with personal feeling. So how I feel is more important than what is objective truth. Now that's asinine. To think that your feeling, your personal feeling is to be elevated above truth. But that's postmodernism. And it has made its way into every facet of society today. It is in academia. Uh, it's in the church. It's in religion as a whole. It's in uh, politics. It's, it, the, the world is inundated with this skepticism and this presentation of an ideology that says how you feel is more important than what is true. <laughs> so 
that's postmodernism. Uh, in rejecting objective truth, uh, objective truth is called by postmodernists naive realism. That's almost an oxymoron. Naive realism. If it's realism, how can it be naive? You can't be naive and be a realistic, realistic, a realist because if you're a realist, it's based on fact. Okay, all right. Um, of course, from that is, is is the critique of religious dogma, religion. A product of that in the quote developed nations, and we and we find ourselves in that time today. A product of that is. That in the postmodern era in the so-called developed world, which would be the first world nations such as the United States and Western Europe, a byproduct of that is that people read less and less. So in the so-called developed world, because there is less and less reading, there is less and less exposure to objective truth. And there being less and less exposure to objective truth means that you have to fill the void with how you feel about something. Thus, it gives birth to what's called relativism. It's re- relativism. Is it relative to you? If it's not, moral relativism, for example, what is moral for you may not be moral for me. So how do I feel about it? You know, how does it apply to me? This is postmodernism. And it has affected the world. It affects our government. It affects our, our academic institutions. Um, it affects it all the way down to the pre-K level where that um, there is this emphasis on how a child feels more than what the truth is about the child. For example, transgenderism. Do you feel like you're a boy or do you feel like you're a girl? Regardless of what the truth is, your feeling is more important than truth. That's what people are taught. For, that's just one little piece of it in uh, postmodernism. So naturally, uh, absolute truth such as the Bible is relative. Um, and we find that in Christianity today because in Christianity, so-called Christianity in the church, we find so much teaching that accepts what feels good but totally ignores what is the rest of the truth. Absolute truth of the scripture. Um, I've had pastors who, I haven't seen them long. Maybe they're still friends of mine. I don't know. Maybe not. Um, but uh, they would, you know, they would plan their, their calendar, I don't know, based on a theme or, or uh, something. That based, based on how they could cherry pick the scriptures. And vast portions of the scriptures. God doesn't waste his breath. You know, can you imagine God in heaven saying, well, I'm going to give you this word, but you know, eh, if you don't feel good about this part, don't worry about it. We're just going to go on. God would ask, what do you feel good about? That's the part I want. Well, God doesn't say that. Of course. Of course he doesn't. That's idiocy to think that he does. Postmodernism. The church has to deal with that because it's a real thing. You don't have to go very far 
to see even, even, uh, even lawmakers are forcing the populace to live under rules based on the feelings of those who have the loudest and most ridiculous voices. That's postmodernism, feeling rather than truth. How do you feel about it? Who cares how you... Churches build their agendas today on how people feel about things. It doesn't see that that is a that is a total departure from objective truth and absolute truth, of course, trumps all of that. And it is obviously objective truth and it is absolute truth, which is the scripture. There's only one absolute truth and that's the word of God. So that's just a. Uh, a review in philosophy of the philosophical and ideological ages of humanity post dark ages kind of shows you where we've gone. So people get tired of scientific inventions and they want something else. They get tired of this. They want something else in the, in, in the age of modernism, uh, Karl Marx wrote about the evils of capitalism because to him, uh, it created inequity and it, it, created, uh, it, it, it created too much of a separation between humanity and, and a sense of unfairness uh, when actually it's just based on, you know, who can do the best with what he has. But still, communism was birthed out of that. In other words, everybody has to have the same thing. Well, that never works. There are always going to be people who work hard and should be rewarded for their heart. And they're always going to be bums who don't. Uh, and they expect the haves to give to them because they're the have-nots. Against the truth that Paul writes, who said, if a man doesn't work, neither shall he eat. So you can see that the only thing that rings true through all of those ages is the word of God. Uh, that's, that's the foundational standard of, uh, of the elect, of the believers. And we, we have these standards that are immovable and they're inerrant. And uh, we are expected to do all that we can do to be obedient to those standards and those principles. That brings us then to the scripture tonight. How fear and love can make us holy. Deuteronomy 6, and we're going to look at the first five uh, verses together here. So then let's look at it. Uh, the word is given for obedience. See, it's not a suggestion. The word of God isn't something that is, it's, it's not up for a vote. It's not optional. This is the word of God. I told you last time, was it, or the time before, whenever, about the, the horrific scene at Mount Sinai when the law was given. I mean, you couldn't even touch the mountain if you lived, not even a donkey. Anything that lived and touched that mountain died on the spot while Moses was receiving the law. The, the, the dynamo that is the giving of God's word to his people, the dynamic of, of the, of the um, utter important. I mean, there's nothing 
that's a higher priority in the lives of his people than to receive God's word as truth and then be obedient to it. Why would God, I never told my child to do something expecting him not to do it. Never did. I don't, I, I can't, unless it was in a joke, you know, why don't you go jump off the cliff? Well, I would never said that, but did I? I don't think I ever said that. Um, but it, I mean, if I'd have said anything like that, it, it was just a joke. It was ridiculous and they knew it. And it was, it was against the backdrop of something that would have made us all laugh. Right. God doesn't just, you know, here's my word here, take it, do what you do with it, what you want. No, 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 no. That's not it. So here the, the, the focus is on the word of God. The word of God is given for obedience from his people. Verse one, this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which Yahweh, El- which Yahweh, who Yahweh, our, our God, which Yahweh, our God has given me to teach you that you might do it in the land where you're going over to possess it. This is a, I've said this so many times. This is a brand new start, a brand new nation. The nation existed as a nation, whether they, whether they recognized it or not, when they came out of Egypt, they were a great people under their God. Now they were loosely connected by tribes, um, but they were, they were brought out as a nation, two and a half, three million of them. And in the covenant that God gave to Abraham, the people are automatically connected to the land. The people have a land. And this is what makes them a nation among nations in the world. So God had prepared this land for them. They're about to go right in there. But here is a fundamental fact for the people of God. You have my word. Nobody else in the world has my word. Here, all of it is the commandments, statutes, judgments, which Yahweh our God has commanded me to teach you. Moses was the law teacher that you may do it in the land where you're going over to possess. This is a this is, a, this is of fundamental importance. My people have my word and they are to obey it. You have the land and you recognize that there's only one true and living God, which was unique among nations then. You also recognize that your God is the almighty God. He's not just a national God or a regional God. He is the true and living God. No other nation has that. You have my word. You saw me give it to Moses and it should be burned in your memory. Uh, the importance that I put on my word and giving it to you. And now as my unique people, you have the land that I've given to you and you're to go in and to possess it. And what you're taught, Moses is teaching. You must do it in the land to where you're going over. To possess it. So the word is given for obedience. Now, the second thing is that in receiving the word and obeying the word, the people are transformed among all other peoples in the world. They are transformed through fear, reverential awe. 
There's nothing bad about fear in this setting because what is implied here in the word fear and the idea of fear for, from, for God from his people is that his word is truth. And there are boundaries and parameters in which we may live. And there are lines which we must not cross or this would put us against God. And we are afraid of God. God punished his people in previous times. And this young generation, if they didn't remember it personally, were taught how God punished the previous generation in their unbelief as they were making their way in those 40 years of wandering. So there's nothing wrong with having a reverential awe and fear in your heart because it shows an understanding that there exists within you both a knowledge of the word of God and a fear of the consequences of disobedience. That's what it says. So that you fear Yahweh your God to keep all of his statutes, all of his commandments that I command you, not just you. You, your son, and your son's son all the days of your life and that your days may be lengthened or prolonged. This will bring you a prosperous and healthy and abundant life and passing that baton, that torch from son to son's son will also make the nation strong because the individual is strong and the individual makes his family strong and the families make the tribes strong and the tribes make the nation strong and the, the nation would be a strong nation among nations. And it, it all goes back to obedience to the word of God. And so obviously this, this thing is extended exponentially all the way through every generation. This, this doesn't just stop with one generation the importance of obedience to the word of God never stops. It goes all the way, I mean, to the kingdom and then into the ages of the ages. Verse three, Israel, you shall listen and be careful to do it. Obey God's word. That it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as Yahweh, the God of our fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. This is money in the bank. Stay constantly reminded of the word of God. Constantly be taught in the sacrifices and in the rituals of what the word of God is saying to you about your relationship to God and his covenant with you. Let it be, and so the you know the feasts and all these things they were designed for a. Uh, I, I've thought about this a lot. The most joyful and happy nation, the happiest nation in the world, would have been Israel in a time of obedience, especially when they came together for their festivals. They, they would be happy. This would be a time of joy and fun, and and you know, boys could meet girls and girls could meet boys. Um, it was a beautiful and wonderful thing. There would be music and dancing and all this thing. 
Uh, so this is the kind of society that the overall law brought to God's people. They would be content, peace at peace with God, peaceful with each other, careful to read and obey his word and live in it from generation to generation. This would have been the most joyous nation that one could imagine. To listen, to listen and be careful to do it. Here's what will happen. You'll become a great, you'll multiply greatly. Just as you were promised by the God of your fathers. In a land flowing with milk and honey. A land flowing with milk and honey. I did a study on that once. I'm not sure I can remember every detail, but honey comes from bees and bees gather pollen. Is that what they gather? They pollinate land, you know, and they bring it back and, and this helps the fields to grow and uh, the, the fields become enriched and these fields that are enriched provide pasture uh, for, the, for the animals and, and here the, the milk would, would be rich and wonderful milk and it would be a prosperous agrarian uh, society and in that a land flowing with milk and honey they had everything that they needed those are basic building blocks of a, of a, of a really prosperous nation a nation of abundance and this would be what the land would be now it's interesting and this is historical fact and you can research it and see this true when the people were forced out of the land the land turned ugly it didn't produce anymore and people who didn't belong in the land and who didn't own the land abused the land and the land did not produce for them but now in a partial sense, at least, Israel being back in the land. And I, I, I watch this kind of thing almost on a daily basis from various uh, broadcasts that come via YouTube uh, to, from Israel. How beautiful and plush and wonderful the land is. And it wasn't that way before. Because this is their land and God has made it so to be productive, a land flowing with milk and honey. Obedience to the word. Love his word. Stay in his word. Do what the word says. That you may, you may do it. He said. Listen and be careful to do it. And you'll be a great nation. You'll be a prosperous and a prosperous nation. A nation with abundance. So the people would be transformed through their reverential awe, their fear of their God. Not just that, but uh, the people would also be transformed through love. Now this is, this is the Shema. Hear Israel. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is one. There is one God. And you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of the means of your existence. 
your strength, everything that you are. And uh, this is, of course, an important emphasis in the New Testament as well, even, even our Lord uh, Christ. And another portion that we're not getting to tonight is mentioned as well. Um, but uh, here is the show. So this is, this is the great promise, the great uh, imperative, the great imperative from Yahweh. Listen to this. Yahweh is God. Now this word, this word, the law, this word came and they saw it. They, they witnessed the giving of the, the, the law, the power of God. And now the, uh, the power of his teaching servant in his last days as the leader of the people before he dies giving to them this re-giving of the law in Deuteronomy. And so here, here is then this imperative. You shall love Yahweh, your God, your God. Very emphatic in that he doesn't claim to be the God of other nations who have twisted themselves under demonic possession to chase after other gods. His purpose in all of this is to be very specific in his relationship to his people. All the way through the Bible, God has his specific people. And here is a case in point. Yahweh, your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your existence, the means of your existence. So your heart, that's the emotional man. I'm sorry, that's, that's the uh, innermost man spilling over into his soul, which is the psychological man who also presents himself intellectually. But it is affected by his, the seat of his emotions. And that pours itself out uh, into his uh, existence, into his life, his living. So what God says here is the imperative, my command to you, love Yahweh your God with everything that is within you. And it will be seen coming out from you. That's what he says here with regard to the people of God. We'll stop there and we'll be dismissed. Father, we are in awe of your word and what it means to us. Thank you, Lord, that you have called us to yourself. Teach us to be strong in these last days. And to stand absolutely in absolute truth and obedience to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.